Welcome to The Yield, the official podcast of Yield Street. Every week, we bring you the latest market insights across our asset classes and products from subject matter experts. Our aim is to break the outdated mold of investing and help you add financial fuel to your ambitions through innovative investing products and strategies, typically unavailable to most investors. Realize your next level with The Yield. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. The views you are about to hear do not necessarily reflect the views of Yield Street. This podcast is intended to be strictly informational and is not intended to be and should not be construed as a research report, investment advice, or the offer or sale of securities or any investment product. Now, let's get into the show. Hello, everybody. This is Rebecca Fine. I'm the head of the art platform at Yield Street, and it's my great pleasure to be joined today by Associate Professor of Art History, Cynthia Gadsden at Tennessee State University. Cynthia is a person I sought out um, months ago when we began our partnership with the Basquiat Sisters on the King Pleasure Exhibition in New York City that fortunately has been extended through October of 2022. For those of you who haven't seen it, it's a must-see exhibition. And I was really fascinated by the fact that the sisters had introduced for the first time a number of writings by Jean-Michel Basquiat, artifacts from his uh, childhood and from his work as as an artist in the 1980s. And What's really remarkable about the history of Jean-Michel Basquiat is how very little he wrote about his art or spoke about his art in videos. And Cynthia um, wrote a master's thesis years ago on this very topic. I sought her out and we have since spoken at length. Without further ado, Cynthia, um, please tell the audience, you know, what inspired the thesis and a little bit about the process and what you discovered. So my master's thesis really focuses on Basquiat, but also um, art writing. And so my premise was, or what what I investigated rather, was that how influential art writing um, is, was and is for an artist um, to become successful. And I use Basquiat, I use the lens of of his uh, particular career um, in the 1980s. He was um, really kind of fascinating for me as an artist. His work is not necessarily warm and fuzzy and um, lovely all the time, but um, there's something that's quite intriguing there. And so um, it was fascinating to learn more about him, to study him. And as you said, he didn't really write about his his own art and then to hear uh, or to learn about the the narrative that was surrounding him that really seemed to have very little to do with him as as an artist and as a person. But this prevailing um, narrative just um, really kind of took over and really began to speak for him and his artwork um, in a way that was really kind of intriguing, really, really intriguing. I remember, um, so the focus of your thesis in part is on the influence, the outsized influence of the art critics writing at the time for Art Forum magazine, which was a very influential uh, magazine at the time. And in particular, you focused on a few of the earliest, I would say, influencers. 
And could you talk a little bit about who they were and their perspectives and, and why they were so influential in shaping the, the narrative that really we understand now to be very incorrect? Well, and, and so let me say there are there were really kind of two camps. So um, there was Art Forum, which really um, was a champion for him. And one of the earliest writers or about him um, that wrote for Art Forum was um, Rene Ricard. And um, he was actually a poet. And so um, there was really kind of this lyricism and almost um, this mystery about him. But then you had another camp of art historians, traditional art historians who, you know, had no idea where where is this, where is this coming from? Why is he getting all this acclaim? And what is, what does his work mean? What does, who is this guy that, you know, doesn't come out of the traditional um, art schools and um, uh, path even? His first exhibition that was a very large group exhibition. Over a hundred artists' yeah. works, works were displayed. I think this was in February of '81. I think it Something was. Like that. Yeah. And Renee Picard, to your point, identified two artists who really resonated um, with him. Basquet was one of them, and it was an overwhelmingly favorable review. Yes. And that was sort of the beginning of his trajectory. This is at a time in 81, Basquiat did not have a studio. He didn't have a studio, I think, until 1982 when Anna Nose uh, had offered space uh, in her gallery for him to work. Rene Picard continued to write about him for a long time, but the other camp that you referred to, what was, um, what was your perspective on what narrative they were trying to create? So that narrative... So there was a a narrative that really kind of um, surfaced about him being locked in the basement uh, and just being required to paint all the time, uh, required to produce work. And that narrative, as ridiculous as it as it is today and as it was then, really took off and really became the the prevailing narrative about Basquiat. And and so. That, that other camp of um, art historians um, really kind of locked onto that and really kind of ran with that. And, and added to that was the fact that he did not come out of a traditional art school. And so, um, you know, that, that label of the primitive, the unintelligent, the, that he, he was only um, working from his senses rather than his intellect. Right, and it was so far from the truth. Part of what's really wonderful about the Basquiat Kim Pleasure exhibition is that the family has shared really intimate details about their home life, their childhood in Brooklyn. He was a polyglot. He spoke many languages. He was very fascinated by art of all forms, including poetry, and he was very literate. Um, in fact, a, a really avid reader. He was also trained, although an autodidact, he did study anatomy. He was very capable of rendering objects and of, of making representational art. Um, but that obviously was not his interest. And he was sort of the first artist to incorporate graffiti and, and sort of street art into, into his work for the studio 
um, he was often painting directly on found objects. And I, I think people don't realize that we had such a creative impulse. It's clear that there was no surface that wasn't interesting to him or wasn't fair game. But he, yeah, the, the thing that um, that was really interesting about that keen pleasure show is it really speaks to um, his black, the black interior space and his work really does a great representation of that, of how diverse it is, how multi-layered it is. And if you look at his work, um, there are layers that is exactly what he's doing. You know, he, um, when he was known for painting one scene and then coming back over it, painting over that, maybe just leaving a little bit of what was below. And so these references to all the, the different aspects of his life that you just mentioned are really um, apparent in his work. And so often... Um, the, uh, the critics during uh, during his lifetime, they would just look at look at his work only on the surface rather than, you know, to really kind of dig beneath that surface to look at all of those um, those layers and those nuances that he was bringing together in a very unusual and new and special way. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of text, a lot of iconography, a lot of overtly political reference to historical events. And one of the very interesting things about the way that uh, Jean-Michel Basquiat's sisters chose to display the work was that they organized a lot of it sort of thematically. Yes. And um, very interestingly dedicated the entire room to his commentary on the state of being, you know, a, a black in the United States and about brut police brutality and the subjugation of the black body and you know the treatment of black athletes and very disturbingly a lot of the commentary is as true today as it was when you did uh, in the 80s when you were investigating the topic were you searching only for text that had been written by Jean-Michel or also video or transcripts of um, interviews that he might have given? I, I, I um, researched um, certainly the text, but also um, uh, the written word. So any, um, he didn't do a lot of, of interviews. So, um, and, and I was looking specifically at interviews that he had done with, um, well, really any interview, but, mm -hmm. um, but those that he did with critics or um, art historians. And those were not, those were, um, there were um, not, those were not frequent. Um, and I think part of the reason maybe is because of the way he was, was treated. I considered it very disrespectful, you know, the way, just the way, even the way they, that um, he was spoken to, you know, um, and somebody that's doing an interview, but it was very much one that was being led in a certain way um, to reflect the, um, the narrative that was that was already out there. And then the sad part about it is those same folks, their writings about him and, and those videos became um, the story of Basquiat, even after his death. Um, that Those are the, the pieces that uh, um, initially went into the um, art history canon about him. So you're referring to um, interviews where he kind of was reduced to babbling and it yes. was very, yeah, maybe you could sort of describe that for people who, who are not familiar with what. So I, I don't remember the interviewer, but you know, um, the questions were very leading and 
it was almost uh, as if, you know, um, he wasn't intelligent. He couldn't put it, uh, put, put thoughts together. And so by the end of the, and so when, uh, when the interview initially began, he was, he was um, answering questions. He was, um, you know, trying to be very thoughtful, but, you know, you recognize when someone is not being really, really respectful or um, condescending very much so. And so by the end of the interview, he was just making really kind of nonsensical sounds. And it was really kind of, well, this is what you want. You know, this is what you expect. This is what I'm going to give you, um, which was unfortunate. And so those um, there was no attempt to understand this new artist and what he was trying to say or what he was saying with his work. There was none of that. It was it was an attempt to make him fit into what um, the, the box that was already um, established for what what was considered good or quality art. And, you know, the fact that he um, did not attend art school, that he was was, quote unquote, untrained. Um, and so it was uh, much more um, this perspective of that we're presenting the um, the primitive here. Um, One of the other, I think, really important features of the King Pleasure exhibit is the care that they took to collect objects and artifacts that were important that, that informed his sensibility, yeah. his cultural aesthetic, um, you know, emotional. He was very uh, well-traveled. He brought objects back from his travels that very much informed his artwork. In fact, one of the dragon heads, I'm forgetting um, whether it was Southeast Asia or where exactly the dragon was from, but that very dragon is then represented on a massive scale in a mural that became part of the room at the Palladium that he um, created it for. And there's sets of really fine china. He was, you know, Epicurean who loved fine, fine food and fine wine. They even tried to understand from his friends at the time what wines he would have been drinking um, at the time and recreated his studio at uh, Great Jones Street. So I, it's fascinating to see them sort of reverse engineer his process and show the not only the ways in which he worked, but you know some of the objects that were dear to him. And they have also excerpts from journals that he kept. He actually kept a lot of journals, a lot of writing in there. I think it'd be fascinating if they ever shared it with the public to see what he was writing. But he was a poet in his own right. And as I said, you know, had a huge book collection of books. And he was drawing from, you know, myriad references throughout his artistic work, period of work. And it's, it's really a credit to them that they were able to to share some of that um, with the public because it really does introduce a dimensionality that I, if people really, I, I don't think, knew about him. You know, and that is one of the amazing and wonderful things about that exhibition is to see, to, uh, to have this narrative really kind of broadened and um, nuances added and... Um, 
revelations, you know, about him as a person, as a brother, that he was a brother, that he was an uncle, that he was a son, you know, that he was, he was a friend, you know, all of these things that, um, would have been really kind of for a long time have been left out. Um, but to see, um, to have particularly his family, his sisters, you know, say, no, 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 this is, this is who we knew. And this is, this is who, this is who he was, you know, not these other stories are just that stories. These are, um, but these are um, stories that actually include the person that we knew and that he was an actual person with lots of nuances with lot, as you said, lots of interests, lots of, um, that he was complicated. He was complex. And so that was just really just walking through that exhibition um, and having the opportunity to um, to see that and to um, to add to my own knowledge about him was really a wonderful experience. It's also wonderful for kids, uh, particularly children of color, to be able to see the range, um, you know, the breadth, the, the yeah. story of his early life and to be able to identify and see themselves in him. Uh, it's really important for kids to have those reference points. And I, I think that it's something that all the public school kids should be able to see in New York city. I'm hoping that with the extension of the show, that there is an opportunity for a lot of young people to experience this exhibition. And yeah, I agree with you. It, it really does elevate the discourse about not only his work, but his, his um, cultural rele- relevance. His cultural relevance, his process, you know, all of that, I think is just so important um, um, for artists in general, for, for art in general, but um, also as you talked about for young people, for people of color for, and for, um, for young artists. You mentioned to me when we first spoke that you, I mean, you're, you're an art historian, you teach college students, and you said that it's not so infrequently a student will approach you and tell them they've discovered this amazing new uh, artist, and, and it's, it's Basquiat. So tell, tell us a little bit about that and how, you know, these many years later, people are not, not only like discovering Basquiat, but finding that he, you know, his artwork really, really resonates with them. You know, and, and I'm not always sure what it is about his work that resonates, um, you know, because, and, and, you know, lots of, lots of students will, um, it's, they're only looking at the art there. They haven't done any research about him or anything like that. And so, it is really interesting how they, you know, kind of come up with, you know, this, this new artist, you know, this, this guy that I, I found out about, or I, I saw his work. And then as they learn more about him, you know, it's like, oh, wow. And you know, that he um, created his own iconography that um, the symbols in his work have lots of meaning and layers as well. And that, that you can do that, you know, that, that you can add that, those, that level of complexity to your work. It's yes. really kind of fascinating. I asked the sisters uh, whether they had use about his use of the copyright symbol, which mm-hmm. frequently uh, incorporates as well as the crown. And I think the, what I understand is that they're sort of coming from the same 
the same thread that he's sort of pulling on, which is a process of like claiming, claiming things for himself. And I don't know if you have sort of thought more about that, but he obviously incorporates a, a great deal of text into many of his works. And it's fascinating to sort of think about whether or not you can decode that in the absence of, you know, a, a definitive explanation from the artist himself, but we, that, that we're never going to have. So we're left to sort of interpret it. Well, you know, he, um, one of his pieces and I, I right now, the, um, the name escapes me, but um, he was talking about ribs and he, he showed a rib bone and, you know, Adam and Eve and the story of the rib, taking the rib from Adam to, um, to include that um, in, um, in Eve's um, origin. But then also um, ribs in terms of the significance to the African-American community. Mm-hmm. So, um, and so, so then pork and, um, and ribs and then, then the layer of how that also affects health within the African-American community. So there are all these different layers with just that one word. And so, um, you know, in that particular piece, as you begin to look at this pig that he's got kind of dancing around, and then he's got these ribs over here that are kind of dancing around. And, you know, when you begin to think about um, and question and, and really kind of interrogate the art, then you see how playful he was with words and text, yeah. but also that the points that he's making in reference to um, these different aspects and meaning related to um, various words. Yeah, I found it really sort of fascinating how, notwithstanding a lot of the stories about his relationships with women, you know, with Madonna, with you know his sort of sexuality that. Sex, sexuality figures very little into his work, which I found fascinating. Religion, on the other hand, is a very big topic of inquiry for him. And the, um, the exhibition dedicates an entire room to his exploration of religion and hypocrisy and um, the use of or misuse of religion and the church. And uh, there were other rooms. I mean, I really can't say enough about this exhibition and the, the importance of, of displaying the, the works in this way and also sharing a lot of 177 objects from this exhibition had rarely or never been seen before by the public. It's just fascinating and amazing. And we did, um, we did a, a tour with uh, a, group of, a small group of investors last week we spoke with both sisters and there was a conversation about legacy and the sort of not, not the, the role of the family in preserving an artist's legacy and the choices that their father had made before them and that they have made now and the intense kind of intentionality and focus on really making sure that Jean-Michel Basquiat's legacy is shared with the public in the broadest in the broadest terms with the broadest public and they've chosen as you may know not to sell uh they at any time could have um made a great deal of money for themselves had they chosen to do that and virtually all of the artwork in this exhibition are 
you know, property of the estate. Mm. So I, I, I think it's very interesting that they've chosen to, to manage the estate this way. I think that's a wonderful topic to really kind of think about um, more broadly, um, particularly within the African-American community or just people of color and the arts. And I think, you know, artists and their artwork, um, I think maybe there's beginning to, to be a bit more traction with that in terms of, you know, that th- th- this is cultural. These are these are significant cultural pieces um, that sh- that need to be honored and cherished in a way that they haven't been in the past. Um, and so to have a family that um, has really kind of held on to that and is using that or using that to talk about, you know, a family member, but also to talk about this wealth of this reservoir of richness that comes out of African-American culture, but the African diaspora. Because if you think about Basquiat, he's African-American, but he has so many other, you know, influences um, with the, um, because he's um, Puerto Rican, but also Haitian. And so, you know, and you see all of that in his work. And so I just think that that's, um, that's, that's an interesting thing to begin to kind of think about and to, and to think about the way um, this particular family has looked at legacy and is, is really kind of promoting legacy in, in a really different way, I think. Yeah. There were some really poignant touches that I found very interesting, really deliberate decisions to include certain things like his bicycle. I don't know if you remember seeing his bicycle parked in front of the, mm-hmm. the studio and they included it without, so there are no explanations, no notes about that. The reason that they chose to include it was that he got around New York city on a bicycle in large part because the cabs would not stop to pick him up. There are a couple of areas where they include like the um, the family kitchen and like the living room. And so when you walk into that and you can see, you can, you connect with that because you can see your family and that is not necessarily based on, uh, you know, African-American or, you know, you just, you, you know, you, the, even the spices, yeah. that were right. that were in the kitchen and so i just think it not only humanizes him but it really is all of these different avenues to enter into the story and to connect with this story in so many different ways whether you're an artist or you're um you're an art lover or you know somebody just drags you along because this is something important for you to see i think it really um opens and broadens this story of not only Basquiat, but African-American culture and the complexity of the interior, Black interior space. And how to curate that that story. This is so far from the White Wall Museum and gallery exhibitions as you can get. In fact, they collaborated with Sir David Adage, the, the renowned world-renowned architect whose team constructed these spaces um, with real fealty and and loyalty to the original environments. Mm. And it was very, I think the sisters were really 
impressed at how, you know, how well they had, they had executed on this really important feature of the exhibition. Uh, I can't imagine that they aren't thrilled with that. But to your point, you're really walking into spaces that he inhabited. It is, I think, going to change the arc of the story. And I think that if art historians are working hard at this, it will inform the way that that the writing is changing or the discourse is changing. You know, and I think it, um, I think it really began to change maybe in the, maybe in the nineties and early two thousands where, where a lot of art historians and, uh, and critics that began to really um, kind of reevaluate Basquiat's career and, and these, the, the narrative about him. So some of that had already been going on, but this, I think the, the exhibition really kind of lays um, a lot of that early stuff to, to rest. Pictures of, for example, of anatomical drawings that he made after he was suffered a, an injury in his yes. childhood and his mother gave him a copy of Grey's Anatomy. And then he's like dutifully drawing pictures of the spleen and the parts yes. of the body that were, uh, had been injured and the ways like clearly this was someone who who knew how to draw and what I have I am not an artist myself but my siblings are artists and you know we speak a lot about the uniqueness of an artist's mark and how physical yes. the process is and with abstraction like the notion that he has a mark that is so specific to him that people recognize it as as a Basquiat is truly remarkable because it really does require sort of unlearning mm, yes. a lot of that and giving yourself permission to really express, you know, what is inside you without reference to, you know, norms and, and, um, you know, our historical precedent and all of that. And, and that's uh, a very difficult thing to do. In fact, a lot more difficult um, than, than rendering an object or, you know, working with light and dark and chiaroscuro and trying to create objects that look like like um, life. So I, I find that really fascinating. What's also really touching is you look at these objects and the art artworks or the scraps of paper that they collected. And this is a family who's held on to this stuff. He was 27 when he died it's not a given that you're going to continue to collect and preserve drawings or objects that were made by a child. I know my mother does it because my siblings are artists, but it's really wonderful to see um, that, that this family treated, and I'm sure it wasn't just Jean-Michel. I'm sure that they have boxes of writings and artwork from each of the family members um, so that was really very special to see. And the fact that they chose to share it with the public is, you know, even more extraordinary. So I, I feel like we're all very much um, indebted to, to them for their large asset for sharing with us. Okay, so Cynthia, you know that Yield Street has been creating art equity funds for investors to be able to participate in diversified collections of Artists, including Jean-Michel Basquiat, our fourth art equity fund includes a really magnificent painting by Jean-Michel Basquiat, as well as artists like Ed Rusha um, and Lucia Fontana, etc. But we are really very, very honored to be able to make 
artwork by Jean-Michel Basquiat accessible to our investors and really think that he is one of the most important artists of all time and are excited to be able to present a portfolio of artworks that includes a really extraordinary artwork by Jean-Michel Basquiat. Cynthia, thanks again for joining us. This has been a really great pleasure for me. Thank you for making time to speak with our investors. Uh, I'm so glad that I sought you out after reading your thesis and wish you the best and look forward to staying in touch with you. Hopefully you'll see the Jean-Michel Basquiat King Pleasure exhibit once more before it moves at the end of October. But many, many thanks again. Thank you, Rebecca. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The Yield. For the latest updates on the alternative investing space, go to yieldstreet.com. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. If you enjoyed the show, feel free to leave a review on Apple Podcasts as this will help other investors like yourself find our show. If you have any questions, please visit us at yieldstreet.com. Thanks again for listening and see you next week. The Yield Street podcast you just heard only reflects the opinions of the host, who is an associated person of Yield Street and does not necessarily reflect the views of Yield Street or any of its affiliates or other associates. The podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be and should not be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell any security and is not an offer or sale of any securities or investment product. The podcast is also not a research report and is not intended to be and should not be construed as investment advice. 